Thanks for joining us here at Body Talk with Bex for episode five. This week, I am interviewing licensed marriage and family therapist, Haley Daggett. We'll be talking about a few of the different taboos and society standards about health and how it's perceived by other people, and also how to talk to your children about either having a pro- you know, medical problems or about other children having medical problems. Just as a forewarning, there is going to be some background noise this week. Uh, (laughs) My chocolate lab scout is a a little bit noisy here in the background this week, so hopefully that's not too much of a distraction for you all. And uh, with that, let's just jump right in. start with talking about your own background, um, all of your schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your credentials, Haley? <laughs> <laughs> um, so in, I did my undergrad at the University of Minnesota, uh, majored in psychology and family social science. From a pretty young age, knew I was interested in psychology and relationships. Didn't grow up in the most like secure environment, so I wanted to learn and understand more about that, be able to help myself, be able to help other people. I really loved it in undergrad. When I graduated, I had a very strong feeling I wanted to go into marriage and family therapy, which is where I hold my license now. But I also had, throughout undergrad, had a job working as a personal care assistant for um, storable little girl who was on the autism spectrum. And so... I wanted to like do a little bit more like career before I went straight to grad school and the child was receiving therapy, at home therapy from a company that wanted to hire me. So I went and did that for a while. It was a very like rigid behavioral therapy approach. So they're taking and for, you know, research from like the 1980s and it was like this really it sounds outdated but it was like this really hallmark study of like it's the first like effective treatment for okay. um kids with autism and it's this very like black box approach so if there's this thing that you want the child to be able to do and then the outcome right like that's all that you look at you don't think about like what the child might be feeling what they might be thinking that's getting in the way of input and output you're just focused on input and output and that's so for example like we would work on like receptive skills so if i want the child to be able to get their own cereal for breakfast yeah so you would ask them like okay cereal because you just use like one term to like keep it simple they could eventually then like figure out like go into the pantry get their cereal and bring it to you and yeah yeah and so like you're looking at inputs you say cereal output is they go get the cereal and bring it to you so then you can make their breakfast but a lot of these kids I would develop like kind of intuitive relationships with even if they weren't verbal and I could tell how they felt and I could tell what they were thinking but I was encouraged to ignore that I was really told to Mm. actually ignore that and to just focus on input and output And so, although, like, I really loved working with these kids and I really cared about their success, I ultimately, like, left the company because I was, like, it was just reaffirming, like... Well, that's hard to have to force yourself to not be attached. Grow attached, in a sense. Yes, exactly. And attached is the perfect word, right? Like, it's just, that that is how I felt. And I could tell that they felt that. And if I was trying to ignore that because that's what my supervisor was telling me I could tell these kids would get frustrated with me yeah and then their performance would drop like yeah (laughs) there was this one kid that like I was particularly paying attention one day and he's like very low functioning on the spectrum and we had just a skill that we wanted him when he goes to school to be able to hang his own backpack up on like a hook okay yeah and you know, I was, you know, kind of being told, like, not to really focus too much on, like, what he, what I can tell he's thinking or feeling. And this, and so it was a little bit more of, like, kind of, like, a less emotional kind of distant session that I was run, running with him. And that whole day, I knew he could do this skill. But that whole day, he would hold his backpack up to the hook, 
look at me, <laughs> smile, and drop it. <laughs> and oh, I'm wow. being told to ignore that, right? Yeah. Like, oh, and like, I'm That's like, okay, this kid though. is telling me, like, where are you? We normally have a lot of fun together. And you're not acting that way with me anymore. And so it just really drove home, like, the importance of... Kids are intuitive. Yes. And, like, even if they do have some sort of disability like that, they they can still sense those things that an average kid can sense as well. Exactly. Exactly. We all have that built into us. Relationships, and I'll talk more about this with some of your questions later, but it's, it's the foundation of being able to talk about disabilities and to feel secure and loved like all of that is just at the foundation I think is is so important for kids adjustment their well-being I think it can positively impact their health and treatment as I saw working with these kids and I mean that all makes sense yeah yeah so I was already thinking when I graduated I wanted to go into a relationship type of therapy doing this kind of black box type of therapy and just how it just kind of ate at me. I was like, okay, this confirms it. So I did my grad school training at Northwestern University, specifically the Family Institute. Um, It is considered the top marriage and family therapy program in the nation. I had a really good experience there. Got lots of great training. Probably my favorite experience was I got the honor of working as a teaching assistant to Dr. Alexandra Solomon. She is the author of Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. Loving Bravely is all about, like, how to, in your early adulthood, prepare yourself and kind of do your own, like, work in order to be able to enter a really healthy, secure relationship. And Taking Sexy Back is all about, like women and how we are sexualized actually like as girls and adolescents and then how that makes our sexuality like very confusing as adults so I think I think you've actually talked about that book with me before yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) I love it I love it I think she's wonderful but that is a very long-winded way I'm not here I mean she's wonderful she also has a podcast I should probably know that Um, uh yeah so she's the host of the podcast reimagining love where she talks more about like relationships and healthy relationships okay I worked as her teaching assistant in this really cool undergrad class called Intimate... Re- no, what, what is it called? Marriage 101. And it's an undergrad class that's, like, very unique for Northwestern University. And it was a, a class that was all about, like, doing almost like a therapy, like, group therapy session. But you're also learning a lot of research about how to construct a healthy relationship and, like doing your own self-work through writing papers. It was featured on the Today Show in 2017. Um, Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that was just such a great honor to be able to work with her and to be able to work with these undergrad students and get to be their therapist in a way. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that sounds like a class that, like, everyone could benefit from. It is. It really is. Yeah, yeah. So I was really excited to do that. So graduated in 2017, worked at a group practice from, in Chicago from <laughs> 2017 until early 2020. Which is when we met. Which is when we met. <laughs> I moved out here to Seattle just for my own, like, change of life pace and opened my own practice out here. So my practice is HD relationship therapy. HD is in Haley Daggett or high definition, <laughs> whichever way you want to interpret that. You can contact me via my website. It's hdrelationshiptherapy.com. Or you can reach me via email, hdrelationshiptherapy at gmail.com. So I now specialize in individual and couples therapy working with enriching relationships. So whether that's your relationship with yourself, your relationship with a parent, maybe you're recovering from a relationship with an ex or in your current relationship or marriage. So just working with relationships in kind of any form or shape that they take um, with adults. So 18 years and older. And I'm my specialties here with, say, couples therapy are general couples conflict, preparing to have kids. So I think that's what I think a lot of what I'll be able to help give insight here today in sex and intimacy. And then in individual therapy, I focus on trauma, childhood trauma, developmental trauma. Which could Um, also play a big role mm -hmm. in just in general with kids growing up with illness because that is Is a a trauma. trauma. Exactly. Exactly. 
And so, uh, yeah, I work with, yeah, trauma, loneliness, which I think is a big deal right now as we're living in a pandemic. Yeah. Everyone's um, a little lonely. Oh, yeah. and they're a scout. <laughs> Here to keep us company. Yep. <laughs> and then I also really enjoy working with body image and I'd say disordered eating. I just don't have specialized training in eating disorders per se, but any, um, specifically women who struggle with body image, really love getting the opportunity to help break down those barriers yeah. of how I think, we think about ourselves. I think I might have you back on for a separate episode just on that because I know I struggled with a lot of body image yeah. and a lot of it was just having like scars from surgeries and things like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a bunch of other people out there dealing yeah. with the same thing that could really benefit from yeah. a more yeah. in-depth discovery of that. To do that. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So that's me in, like, you know, a 30-minute nutshell. (laughs) Just a quick little deep dive. (laughs) Great. So we're going to move into – we've only got about three questions. I figured we could just spend however long feels natural on each one. So we'll start with the first one. Why is it considered taboo to talk about or ask about disabilities or health issues? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one I think ties into the idea of normalcy. And we'll talk more about that, but we are all, as human beings, we are tribal creatures. So we are wired to want to and need to connect with other human beings. And if you think back to like prehistoric times, early man, you needed your tribe to survive. And you could, if if you were exiled, you know, that was one of the punishments that, like, early early civilization used was exile and death. And so a lot, and, you know, a lot of times exile would be... But exile was death. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And it was, like, a prolonged death. So it was, like, a scarier death. And the other ways that you could fall out of your tribe was if you couldn't carry your weight, if you couldn't contribute, or if you were holding the tribe back, if you're thinking about like early war, like these were the most, you know, if, if you had any types of impairments, you were the most vulnerable. Right. And as a way to try to, I think, fit in or to try to keep ourselves a part of our civilization and our tribe, the emotion of shame developed. And so this is knowing or believing something is wrong with me. And I use wrong very liberally, not as in like something is bad, but like, yes, something is off. Like something is not right in my body. And if you could effectively hide that from other people, you would be more likely to survive in your tribe. And so I think that is kind of a evolutionary emotion, shame that we're wired to have. And so we don't want to talk about what's going wrong in our body because somewhere in our little reptilian brain, we go, I could get exiled and I could die because of this. And so if you also think, and I don't know if this was your experience, if everyone is somehow carrying that in me, in them, right? And you go to talk to someone else about there's something going wrong inside of me. And again, keep that evolutionary idea in mind. Well, the person who I'm talking to is also wired to feel shame. And so if they're not self-aware, the shame can transfer from the person who feels it and crawls up the leg to the other person. And out of their own emotional overwhelm, their amygdala lights up and goes, this is scary this this ignites my fear of being exiled and they might shut down and they might not want to talk to you about it and then you feel reinforced something really is wrong with me right yeah and so i think if you've had even a little bit of an experience with that you you don't want to talk about it right yeah and so and then and then i pair that with this kind of and this was what i was going to say if this is if this matches your experience i think doctors are And the medical field is changing. I think bedside manner and compassion is becoming more and more an essential part of being in the medical field. But as it should be. (laughs) Apps because of the shame reason that I'm giving you. But 
I think for a really long time, it wasn't. And so doctors are just, you know, they're, they're thinking in terms of like facts, you know, they've studied, they're very intelligent people. Maybe they haven't had the time to do their emotional work. And so the way then that they end up talking to you. They need to go take marriage 101. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways. Yes. <laughs> Right. So, and you can speak to this, Becky, and like confirm it. But, you know, I imagine with doctors, yeah, being like a very rote, they're focused on the facts, they're focused on the medicine, they're not trained in compassion. Yeah. And so you come to them, and this is something that maybe you've been really scared of getting rejected for. And they just look at you and they like describe it very factually without any warmth. Yeah. And actually, I know none of the actual episodes are out yet, but I talk Mm -hmm. about this a lot in reference to the first doctor that my mom ever took me to when I was, you know, like one, two, three years old. Mm -hmm. And that first doctor had just zero compassion, no Mm -hmm. empathy, was Mm -hmm. just cold to the point from the textbook. Mm -hmm. And this is what's wrong. You need to accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was one instance where, uh, my mom had said, well, the doctor had asked, like, how's it going at home and everything? And my mom would be like, oh, like, things are going better, I think. Like, she seems to be able to, you know, like, hold it and run to the bathroom. And the doctor was just like, well, that's just your perception of what you think Mm. is happening. But that's not possible. So much sensitivity, empathy, compassion. Just lacking. So lacking. So lacking. But that was just every interaction with this doctor until we obviously left her care. Mm -hmm. But... I mean, I can't imagine as a parent and already being worried about your kid and, like, having, I guess, that deep down shame of, like, having a kid that has a problem. Yeah. And then having to deal with a doctor like that would be so harmful Mm -hmm. to the parent's decision-making process, too. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. And so there's all this reinforcement, all this feedback, I should say, that's coming back telling you this isn't this. This is just going to make me feel worse. To talk about. And so I think that's why it has become so those two reasons combined of like we're wired to feel the shame because we don't want to be exiled. And then when we do talk about it, without that bedside manner, without compassion, without empathy, we feel terrible after we talk about it. And so then we also tell ourselves that shame is right and we shouldn't talk about it. And then everyone carries that within them somewhere. And it's this like silent agreement that because we don't want to feel like crap and we don't want to get exiled, we don't talk about it. Yeah. I think another thing that kind of goes with that too is that because we don't talk about it, we're never really taught how to ask other people about it. Yes. And so when you do talk to someone who does say I have a problem, the way that you ask them can be perceived in a harmful way because you were never shown how to properly right ask about it correct yes and that's what I meant by kind of the shame calling up the leg of the other person the you know they haven't confronted their own shame they don't know they don't have a map for what to do with that and so they just go blank on the other person yeah yeah so we're gonna skip to the normalcy question just because it kind of coincides with the question that we just talked about do you think that the idea of normal is fading or kind of being cast aside. And it seems, especially with everything going on with the pandemic and just the having more platforms to talk about Mm -hmm. mental health, it seems like that's becoming more either normal or it's accepted better in society than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. I, of course we don't want to be living in a pandemic, but... You know, it's it's if you really let yourself feel it every day, you wouldn't get out of bed. And so it is a traumatic time. But I think one of the good things that it's doing is it's, you know, calling us to talk about our health and our mental health. And a lot of people like this podcast, right? You're, you're setting a path of courage and bravery to say, hey, it's OK to talk about this. And we're all going through it. And so I think there's less likely the shame that crawls up your leg and just kind of like, oh my God, me too. Yeah. And this is going to be maybe like a hot take, but it's my perspective. I do think the words like normal, anormal, typical, atypical, they're necessary because it does provide language to talk about health. But what I think we're paving the way for is we can say, this is abnormal and 
it's okay. There's nothing, it's not about you. It's about, it's about a condition that either you're born with or you're going through and it does not reflect who you are as a human being. So you can be abnormal and still accept it. I think it's a little bit more of the acceptance than it is about being normal. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think that there's going to be like some new vocabulary coming up based around that? Um, I would love that. We're finding new ways to talk to each yeah. other about it. There's got to be new words coming up for different yeah. scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. To that point, I mean, yeah, maybe at some point we cast aside the use of the word normal. It's hard for me to imagine that. Um, yeah. Because, and this is just coming from like a clinical perspective, which I think we can all be, have more richness and depth and that's yeah. what's needed beyond the clinical perspective. But if I'm thinking about like the DSM, like my class to learn about the DSM was called abnormal psychology. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Real stigmatizing. Yeah. 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 And so I do think it's a term that like clinical and medical professionals still use. But I know at least in my clinical like mental health experience, when I use the word abnormal, I don't mean it in a stigmatizing way. I mean it in this sense of like, this is not what we would typically see. There is a divergence that like we need to pay attention to because it signals, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It signals like, oh, you need help. Here, come here, right? Like let's let's get you some treatment. If you're abnormal, it signals, okay, we need treatment, but there doesn't have to be that shame around that. And there shouldn't have ever, hopefully, you know, I don't know. Be that, That's, yeah. Those aren't the right words, but like, we don't need the shame. I think it was once important when we were a much simpler society. Right. But, but it's now, not so yeah. necessary in our current society. Correct. So we need to kind of start weeding it out. Correct. We can evolve past yeah. judgment when it comes to abnormality. We can yeah. use it as a marker of, oh, you need treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's the term. Someone who needs treatment. Maybe yeah. maybe that's what the term becomes. We're Someone just going to start help. calling it that. People who need help. <laughs> when we all need help, right? We yeah. all need help for different things. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about what I'm saying? I like that. I think I know kind of what we were saying with like doctors and bedside manner, I think. Mm -hmm with that type of terminology I know like doctors like you would be really careful about like explaining what you mean by normal yeah. and abnormal yeah. and I just feel like a lot of doctors that don't have that bedside manner yeah. maybe don't yeah and so maybe and I should even clarify where we start is getting that like translation of okay yes. what does that mean yes yes and to be to be clear even further I I think of abnormality like I said in or norm normality in a clinical sense I would right. never tell that to a client okay. I would never use that term with a client okay. Okay. What you're experiencing is abnormal. I would say, right. this is what you're experiencing. I'm seeing that you're showing symptoms of depression, and that because I care about you, because you're a new, nor because you're a human being, I don't want that for you. Right. I want you to. I, so I want to be able to help you, and I want to be able to give you this treatment so that you can feel happy and be okay. And so that's the verbal, like that's how I would explain it. But like to keep it concise, when I'm talking or consulting with other clinicians. I might use the word typical, right, atypical, right. normal, abnormal, but I would never tell my client, <laughs> well, this is not normal. Right. <laughs> I would say, oh, that's concerning because I care about you. Right. And you seem to be struggling. Right. Yeah. Okay. I like that clarification. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I asked then because I didn't want it to seem like I was like, yeah, we're just going to keep using the term abnormal and, you know, good clarification. <laughs> Like, yeah, so you seem really atypical. Um, <laughs> oh, which, no. By no. the way, have yeah. you watched the Netflix series Atypical? I've seen a few episodes, yeah. Okay, yeah. I binged all four seasons after it came out, and yeah. it was really good, and I think that they definitely pinpointed and brought attention to some issues that are yeah. out there just regarding the outlook on people like that. Yeah. So yeah. I really like that there's work being done like mm -hmm. out in the more artsy and social side as well, yeah. just so that the general public is normalizing themselves. Yes, <laughs> with it. yes, right. Like there yeah. is like, it's hard for me to parse apart. And like, I think, 
I'm, I'm even processing as I'm answering this question, but I do know like a term that I really like speaking to like ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, what we used to call like Asperger's, using the term neurodivergence. So we're just talking about the divergence. Right. Rather than having to say it's a divergence from normalcy. We're just going to say like, oh, this is... This is a divergence. Maybe we can come up with that term that isn't, you know, just speaking to like neurodivergence. Maybe there's like emotional divergence or right. like mental divergence. But yeah, Love on the Spectrum, I think, was another one. Oh, similar. I haven't watched that one, but I've heard really good it's things about so it. So heartwarming. So heartwarming that like I just think it really captures that term. Yeah, like neurodivergence. There is a different way of processing, but Again, like look at all the beauty and the relationships yeah. and how that just like really yeah it's why I'm where I am now as a therapist and not where I was before because yeah. there was no space for that yeah oh yeah yeah definitely yeah okay this is technically our last question although I've definitely it's... thrown like a lot of really random small ones at you throughout that weren't scripted mm-hmm Mm-hmm. This so, is also, it's a big talking point, so you know? So who knows if this is really the last question. <laughs> <laughs> but how can parents talk to their kids about disabilities or health issues? Mm-hmm. So, and, sorry, to preface that, that can be in two different ways. That can be either a parent talking to a kid that doesn't have health issues, mm-hmm. but talking to them about how some kids may have some. Yeah. Or talking to a kid who does have health issues. Mm -hmm. There's kind of two different Mm -hmm. categories there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me let me speak to talking to as if it's your child who has the health issue. Okay. I think the very most important thing, and I alluded to this in the beginning, is that safe attachment between parent and child making sure that I, the most important thing so is... So you want to bond with your child. Yes, that that is good. None of, none of this no bonding business. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. We're going to leave the 1950s parenting in the 1950s. Children are meant to be seen and heard. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. See, like that attachment, like this child knows when they're scared, they can come to me and yeah. they're loved and they are safe with me. That is, it sounds so obvious, but I think especially when you're dealing with a child that needs medical attention, that's a scary world to be in. Yeah. And so you really need to, I think as a parent, think a lot about, do your own work. Think a lot about like how have the terms normalcy and needing medical treatment affected me in my life and how can I do my work around that so that I am calm and I am secure and I am an anchor for my child who when they come to me, I don't freak out because I've got my own insecurities about this. I am a steady anchor. I can hold them. I can just be with that emotional wave that's going to come up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from there, it's about knowing where your child is developmentally. So what concepts can they understand and what concepts can't they understand? And I think there's too much variety for me to really do that justice. Completely fair. Completely fair. Um, So there's some intuition there, but I think if you're thinking about, I think, kids in general, like 12 and under, you're not going to have a sit-down conversation. You're going to play to be able to explain this to them. So what is it? If you think of like the concept, my child has, can we use you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my child, um, and Becky, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to repeat your diagnosis to me. <laughs> so I was born with bladder extrophy. Bladder extrophy. Okay. My child has bladder, bladder extrophy and the symptoms are incontinence and bedwetting, right? Yeah. Okay. And so... What do you think, how do you think that might affect a child? Let's say you are, let's go six years old. You're beginning to socialize with your peers. You're going to school and you have these symptoms. And so I'll I'll give you an example for you and you can run with it. But I wasn't allowed to wear pants until Mm -hmm. I was about 12 or 13 Mm -hmm. because I didn't have quite the right like muscle structure in order to get to the bathroom in time. Yeah. And so having to like unbutton, unzip was too much. So I just could only wear skirts or dresses. Yeah. To school, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. And how did that present or did that present like any struggles for you? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be like, why can't I wear the pants? Mm-hmm. Or we'd go shopping in the Gap or whatever. And I'd be like, but these pants are sparkly, Mom. Mm-hmm. And I really want them. And she'd be like, well, you're not going to wear them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because okay. you can okay. only wear the skirt. Yes. And okay. she would have to explain. Yes. And and as a, you know, let's say eight-year-old or six-year-old, right, you're not going to understand the term bladder extrophy. So right. you're not going to sit down. Your mom's not going to sit down and Didn't say. Didn't even know how to spell it to my nope. teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I wouldn't tell either I've probably still you could ask me to spell it and I would get it wrong please don't (laughs) and yeah so like a kid is not going to sit down and like understand the medical history and like what it means like like mother and doctor would or father and doctor would right and so let's say were you into like did you play with like Barbie dolls oh yeah I mean I really loved fashion polys Mm-hmm. That was my jam. Perfect. Okay. Okay. So like that's a because we're talking about sparkly pants, right? Yeah. Okay. So you're gonna play a game with your kid, and you're probably going to have your fashion Polly. Yeah. It's like Polly Pocket. They're like in between the size of Barbie and Polly Pockets. I've never heard They're of like these. this big. They've got like rubber clothes that you put on them. And it's stuff. like Betty Spaghetti. Yeah, but like smaller. Smaller than Betty Spaghetti. Yeah. Okay. Betty Spaghetti was small. No, Buddy Biscetti was, like, this big. They were, like, the same size as Barbie. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I had them all. Okay. <laughs> so, six, six, seven-year-old Becky, her fashion poly yeah. is going to go for the sparkly rubber pants. Hell every yes. single time. And Hell she's yes. going to put it on. Okay? This is where you jump in, Mom. And you, like... You have then maybe I'm sorry I'm gonna use Betty Spaghetti. That's okay. That's what's gonna just like <laughs> keep popping you know into my Betty mind. Spaghetti yeah, is. I'm gonna have to think about Fashion Polly every single time. It's gonna create a lot of pauses. Betty Polly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like I'm gonna let you like play because that's important for you to get to like project and imagine yourself wearing sparkly jeans. And I'm gonna let you play with that. I'm gonna interact around that. And at some point. I'm going to have my Betty Spaghetti keep putting on dresses and skirts and I'm going to watch your emotional reaction to that and you're and I'm I'm going to gauge that so that I know this is this is hard to explain because I don't do so much like play therapy so this mm-hmm. is all conceptual but so you're thinking my idea as mom is I'm going to get it to be so that my Betty Spaghetti wears all dresses and skirts, and Becky likes that. So I'm going to start, like, really slow. And maybe we're playing shopping, and we've got, like, we're playing, like, we're pretending that our Betty Spaghetti's are going shopping. And my Betty Spaghetti is only looking at the dresses and skirts. And then you, seven-year-old, is going to get mad and say, no, Mom, come over here and look at the jeans with me. She wants, doesn't she want to wear jeans? Okay, like... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you just a little bit. I'm going to pull you to your tolerance to jeans or to skirts and dresses just a little bit by saying, no, 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 she's going to come over here. And you're going to have an emotional reaction to that. And I let you have that emotional reaction. And maybe you want to quit and you don't want to play anymore. And that's fine. If we're talking like a more like structured, like play session, you're coming right as soon as you're emotionally regulated, you're coming back to the play. And we're going to play again. And then this time... My Betty Spaghetti is going to start trying on the dresses and the skirts, and you're going to have an emotional reaction to that. And I'm going to give you time to have your emotional reaction to that. And then you're going to calm down, and you're going to realize you're okay. And then for now weeks, we're playing, and only My Betty Spaghetti wears dresses and skirts. And maybe at this point, you're able to to tolerate like oh they're so pretty they're so cute I think my Betty Spaghetti wants to try a dress and a skirt now and through that process of play we're not actually talking about like I'm not wrestling you every morning right and and maybe during this play like that is still happening but that's not where the conversation is happening the conversation is happening when we're playing because it's going to give the kid a little bit of distance to be able to emotionally process what it is that they're that they're struggling with and then be able to tolerate it slowly and slowly and slowly and maybe right so as you're getting into dresses and skirts every day on Betty Spaghetti being a cool thing maybe she then begins talking about mom her Betty Spaghetti starts talking about like rushing to the bathroom and that like and maybe your Betty Spaghetti like comes along and helps her or something like that Mm -hmm. like and so then this becomes so you're at some point connecting it to the medical condition 
and you're doing it very slowly, very emotionally grounded up until it's something that you as the child are like participating with in a happy way. And it's then going to help the child to hopefully be okay with this. If you imagine yourself at like seven, six, seven, eight years old, how how do you think this type of play would have impacted you? Well, I'm just, first of all, trying to even picture my mom playing dolls with me all at that age. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that would be... I think that would have been a good way to handle it. She was always a little bit more direct with me. Okay. Not necessarily using, like, big words and, like, explaining it that way and, like, really breaking mm-hmm. it down, but just, be like, you know, if I asked her, can I get the jeans, she would be pretty honest with me and say, like, you wouldn't be able to make it to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to go with the skirt. But then it would, she would turn the focus into, but what skirt do you want? And it would go back to Fantastic. finding something. Yes. Kind of yes. like what you were doing with the dolls. Yes. Like, if we are looking at skirts, which one do you like? Yes. Let's go do that. Yes. Yes. And it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So she's turning you away from, from like, what you because she has to right. Yeah. So like she's giving you a brief explanation and then she's getting you excited. And yeah. I think you've talked so much about your mom and I love your relationship <laughs> with your mom. And so she clearly did an amazing job. And right. Just like from a clinical perspective, I would say, and like, let's create some room to be upset about, yeah. about not being able to wear pants. Let's get that emotion yeah. out. And that was always at home too. Like she was good at garnering, like um, you can yeah. have your blow ups at home, whatever, that's fine. But mm-hmm. like not in public. If we're going to have a discussion, mm-hmm. we're going to go home and discuss it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for a lot, a lot yeah. of parents that it's just, for better or worse, I don't know, right? Like, I don't know if, I'm not judging. I don't know if it's right yeah. or wrong to, like, let your kid have a meltdown in public. But I imagine that to be very stressful. And if yeah. my job as a parent is to be that that secure anchor, I need to be okay. And so I need you to not have the meltdown in yeah. public. Because whatever, I have, I carry my own thoughts and experiences about meltdowns in public. And yeah. I'm not going to keep it together if you can't keep it together yeah. in public. <laughs> and so your mom did an amazing pivot to be able to make that work. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think just the play allows for a little bit more space for you to ask questions. Like, yeah. why can't she wear the skirt? And, like, to be able to play that out. Have more of the longer conversation mm-hmm. that we wouldn't necessarily have like when we're in the store actually shopping correct yeah exactly so you're rehearsing it in a sense so maybe you play this before you go shopping yeah or you just haven't gone shopping in six months because (laughs) you're working (laughs) on playing this and maybe your child does have a particularly difficult temperament where they can't avoid yeah it does they do have the meltdowns in public and so Yeah. yeah that is neither here nor there but the play allows the child to be able to tolerate the emotions in order to be able to get the care and like understand the limitations yeah. I, I suppose that they that they have and so you're noticing me take like a very like emotional approach because as humans we are wired to feel emotion motion comes from the latin word to move and so Yes, we use our intellect to help process emotion, but at the end of the day, our bi- our bodies are wired to do what our emotion is guiding us to do, whether or not you know that. <laughs> <laughs> on some level, like that, you're making decisions largely based on your emotion and your and that like shapes your understanding. And so that's that's why I go at that like emotional level. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Okay. What would you, now that you've had a little bit of time to think, what would you do for a kid that doesn't have any mm-hmm. any medical problems? Mm-hmm. How would you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, let's just say that you're a parent and you saw a kid who does have a medical problem and your kid's kind of, like, staring. Mm-hmm. How would you handle that situation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, ideally, I'd like to get ahead of that. By playing yes. a certain block game. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, let's... Sorry. Can we split the question then and totally. do... Can we talk about what you would do to get ahead of that? Mm-hmm. And then also, how would you address it if it does happen? Correct. Yeah, because it's going to. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> kids are kids. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So I, I grew up in an environment where I needed to understand very young that there are barriers in life. And so... 
I always imagined, I think probably in like the last like five years, if I were to have kids, like, gosh, how would I go about explaining that to my kids? Because that was distressing. And so I kind of imagined this block game where, I mean, you can kind of use, you can maybe even incorporate in kind of like a game like path, like uh, like Candyland. So, right. So you're trying to get to the end. I love Candyland. Yes. Right. So we can change up Candyland (laughs) or whatever game it is that they play that's similar to Candyland. For those of us who grew up in like the 80s, 90s and know what that is. I don't know if kids still play it. Yeah, I don't know. If there's a similar one. But like very easy concept. Yeah. Like at first of like you're just drawing a color and you're getting to the end. Yeah. But in this version, we're just going to give some players, maybe like everyone has like their own board and some players are going to have a block that just blocks them at some point. And some are going to have entire walls that block them. And we're going to incorporate that into the game to kind of demonstrate that for no reason that has anything to do with my little candy, Candyland man, some people just get to go all the way through and some people get stuck behind blocks. And if we like that person, what do we do? Don't we want to, like, go help them, like, climb over that? Yeah. And, like, tolerating the emotion around that, too, of, like, getting them to figure out that, like, oh, it's not the red candy man's fault. It is, there's just this, there's just this block up. Like, right. And they, and they're going to take longer to get to the end because of that. And sometimes maybe they just get stuck there. Maybe it's something that they can't get past. Do we want them to be alone? No, we don't want them to feel alone. And so you're helping kids, like, understand that, like, not everyone has the same draw in yeah. life. And so this can apply to, like, teaching your kids about racism. This can apply to teaching your kids about, like, maybe aunties and uncles who have been through trauma and are, like, not, you know, are a little, maybe they're a little harsher, they're a little meaner. Yeah. Trying to help your kids to understand that. And maybe this applies to, like, peers that they're going to meet that are in wheelchairs or that have medical conditions yeah. or are deaf. And that it's not a reflection of them, but that we we made friends, we can make friends, we can have fun with these people, and then we want to help them over their barriers or be with them if it's not a barrier that they can get yeah. past. So that's how we try to prevent that happening. Now, even... Real quick, though, before you move on, have you thought about a name for this game? I should probably trademark it, shouldn't I? You totally should. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've got to develop like some more like rules into the game of like how these blocks come to exist and like how you overcome them and stuff. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Because I'm liking this idea and I think that could be like a real game out there. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I should trademark it before you release this (laughs) now. But yeah, no, that could be a really cool idea. Maybe, maybe I should. You're the second person that's told me like this is cool. And so it's, yeah, maybe, maybe for all the kids out there. Think about it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see unless someone beats me to it. Anyway, so that could be a way to prevent it. But I think like to your point, you're going to be so much more likely to run into as a kid a situation like this, either before you've been exposed to this game, you've got a parent, who, even if you have a parent who's super on it and you've been playing this game since you were two years old, the child's connection to the game and reality might not we're quite. Not, we're not going to quite integrate that. So it's going to happen. And Can you give me that example again of, like, what you imagined of, like, being on the playground and... Yeah, I actually had an experience when I was 11. My mom Mm. and I were at the mall here in Seattle. It was after one of my surgeries, and so Mm -hmm. I was wearing a dress, but I still had, like, some tubes attached. Oh, okay. And so we had, like, a little bucket, and we had some of the tubes up and going into the bucket with, Mm -hmm. like, the stuff that I needed. And this mom and her daughter, who is a little bit younger than me... The girl pointed at me and asked her mom, what's wrong with her? Like, really loudly. Mm-hmm. And uh, her mom had to kind of like, oh, honey, don't point or anything like that. Yeah. And they kind of like just walked the other direction. Yeah. And I'm wondering, what can the mom have done better in that situation versus also maybe doing what she did, but then tackling it later in private with the kid maybe is what I think might be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my answer right right away would have been like, nothing. Nothing is wrong with her. I, depending on the age of the child, I maybe would have used the term like, looks like she's got some fancy stuff in that bucket. Looks like, uh, yeah. Yeah. I like that. She's got some fancy stuff in her bucket. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with her. There's got some fancy stuff. And then we smile and we wave and then we walk away. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not going to like 
approach you and ruin yeah. your day by being like, explain this. What's right. going on? To no, that's not that's not for you. That's not for your mom. You make the situ- you neutralize the situation by normalizing it. Nothing's wrong with her. She's got some fancy stuff in that bucket. Pretty cool. You you want to like maybe validate that your child noticed yeah. that by. And I think that's where I'm getting at with, like, looks like she's got some fancy stuff in that bucket. So you're validating, yeah, you saw something. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, yeah, you saw something. So then we walk away from that. And, gosh, how would I want to begin tackling that? I know. That's a hard one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining the child's response. She's going to have a response first, right, to what kind of stuff is right. in that bucket. And maybe that's, okay, so, you, you know, she's, so maybe child's asking that and you say, okay, we're going to go over this way. And you distract your kid with, like, looks like she got some fancy stuff in that bucket. Here, let's go get some donuts over at this stand that's, like, <laughs> a solid, you know, yeah. 100 yards away. <laughs> and so the kid's going to start asking questions on that way, probably. Like, yeah. well, what's in her bucket? Like, what is it? Like... And I think in that moment, you can, as your, as like the parent, like use, and we'll say mom in this case, because it was a mom. And in this case, like use your humility. I don't know, sweetie. Like, I don't know what's in that bucket. It seems like it's something that helps her, that she needs. And then maybe this is a good opportunity where you start introducing that concept of, so sometimes people have things that we don't recognize. Sometimes they look ways that we don't recognize. And then you're introducing the concept of like, that's okay. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. Maybe then we try like some empathy of like, but can you imagine what that would be like to have to carry a bucket around with you? It looks kind of cool, but if you had to carry that around with you, what do you think that would be like? Oh, that would be heavy. I don't know if I would like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you think you could do? If you, if, what do you think would be nice if your friends did for you, if you were carrying a really heavy bucket? Oh, I'd like it if they carried it with me. Yeah. Would you like it if they went and got donuts with you too and laughed about donuts? Yeah. I'd like that. So you're, I, I, what I'm getting at with this is like on another level, once again, you're going to acknowledge that, that there's kids like this, but you're going to see them as a human being, as someone that you can connect with. And so you're keeping the problem. We don't really need to talk about the problem, but we're going to talk about like the human connection that you could still have and like, and still even sounds like the wrong word, right? That like is with any human being, right? There's nothing that's going to prevent that. If we're talking about neurodivergence, right? Maybe that's not the same connection, but that was actually something that I really loved about one of the kids that I worked with. She was integrating into a public school and she was still like largely nonverbal or she could communicate well, but it would maybe, if you know what like stims are with kids on the autism spectrum. So she could communicate, but maybe like halfway through a word, she would start kind of like fidgeting with her hands and kind of mm. looking into space. And it's it's still, we call it a stim. It's a self-stimulatory behavior. Okay. Um, it's just something that these kids are more prone to do. We all do stimming behavior. When I get nervous, I chew on my lip. Pick at my fingers. Yes, exactly. Self-stimulatory behavior. It's used to regulate your nervous system. And so those kids, it was really good. The the school itself was really good about like introducing her, asking the kids like to to help her out. Like sometimes she would zone out and maybe like be on the way to get like some art supplies and she'd hold up the line. And so the school was really good about like, oh, let's call her Susie. Like And the kid behind is named Anne. Anne, can you help Susie grab the scissors? And these kids, right, would like, maybe, yeah, you can't like sit down and play and laugh at these kids because maybe they're just a little bit further off from being able to concentrate on the Mm -hmm. here and now. But it's really beautiful how kids like at that young age, when you get it in them, they want to help. Yeah. Like they want to be your friend. They want to work with you on the level that they can meet you with. And so if you're just explaining it kind of like it's it is because it is it is normal, right, to need yeah. help. And so like, okay, Anne, can you help Susie remember like like to get her scissors? And so you'd be like, Susie, like and these that's what these kids would do. Be like, Susie, remember scissors? And usually then Susie'd be like, Oh, yep, I'm back here. And then like maybe they'd point to like the next object and now you gotta get this one. And all the other kids would, like, jump in and want to help her, too. That's and really cute. It is. It is. It's really, really sweet. Like, when kids, like, it, it's just so naturally reinforcing 
it feels good to help other people. And so when they got that little like hit of dopamine or oxytocin from helping, they want to do more of it. And so I think that's another important thing to understand as a parent that like at that age, kids are so resilient and they want to help and they want to love and they want to share And maybe you had your own experiences throughout your life that, like, made those things seem, like, weird or scary. But to remember, like, where your kid is is that they are wired to want to help and it's wired to feel good. And so embrace that. I think that's a really good point, too, that maybe at the point where we're a parent ourselves, we might have Mm -hmm. kind of grown out of those things. Exactly. And maybe it's bringing us back to our own core. Correct. As well. Yes. Yes. I think it can be... Such a good opportunity. I mean, yeah, you're looking at like a fork in the road either way. You either kind of succumb to the insecurity that it brought up in you. You really miss an opportunity for you and your kid. Or you're aware like, oh, these are the emotions that are coming up for me. This is my insecurity. And the opportunity to look into your kid's eyes and see that it doesn't exist there yet. And like to be able to like help them to like follow their own kind of intuition to help and then you as a parent get to re-experience like that beauty in life and in human connection and like that sounds cool to me yeah yeah I think that was all of my questions for today yeah (laughs) I mean if that if anything it's given um you know a starting point to get the conversation going Yeah. yeah yeah And as I mentioned just before, this is something that I love to do as a therapist is helping parents to connect with their kids on that emotional level. So if anything about this spoke to you, go ahead and reach out to me. I know I listed, maybe you can put it in the comments, my contact information, because this is what I love to do. I love to help people experience human connection. Yeah. Shamelessly plugging myself. Oh, yeah. Please do. Thanks for listening to Body Talks with Bex today. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation with Haley Daggett and hearing about different types of things that we can do to open the discussion around um, illness and anything medical. As a quick reminder, you can contact Haley at hdrelationshiptherapy at gmail.com or head on over to her website www.hdrelationshiptherapy.com. For those of you who really like this podcast and want to keep listening to it and keep me going, um, since I am just working out of my own living room right now and funding all this on my own, head on over to my Patreon page that I just got set up and going and show some support. Um, For anyone who is interested in sharing their own story or being a guest on the show, head on over to the website and check out the Contact Me page. Thanks for listening.